You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. In 1947, shortly before my father would walk a thousand miles south from his family's estate in Manchuria, he had this conversation with his Taoist uncle. Nephew, you have studied so many years. Do you know what it means by wu yu nai gang? Asked second uncle. It means if you have no desires, you will be as strong as steel. That's right, but you probably don't have an understanding beyond that second uncle said and took a long draft from his gurgling water pipe. Let me tell you a story about Zhuangzi. One day, a fellow came to him and said, the king wishes to confer a great title upon you. Zhuangzi responded, have you ever seen the sacrificial bull they display at the temple? During holiday, they kill that bull. They dig out his entrails, hang him up like he was standing up on his hind legs. They dress him up in a an expensive brocade. You may say, oh, what an impressive bull, but that bull emptied of his bowels is sacrificed to the gods. The animal was fed the best before he was butchered. Now, if I should take that title, I will be given all sorts of privileges, but when the king wants me as a sacrifice, I'd be the same as that bull. Nephew, if you don't have desires, then you are truly strong. No one can force you to make kowtows. Bell Yang is the author of Baba, Return to China Upon My Father's Shoulders, The Odyssey of a Manchurian, Chili Chili Chin Chin, Hannah is My Name, Always Come Home to Me, and Foo the Flying Frog of Washtub Pond. The documentary film My Name is Bell is based on Hannah is My Name. Her new book is the graphic novel memoir Forget Sorrow, an Ancestral Tale. Thank you for joining me, Bell. Great to be here, Rick. Belle, this is such a lovely and fascinating book, and and I'd like you to talk about the decision to tell this story in this form. When did you first decide to tell the story as a story, or or even see it as a story? I mean, it's a family story. That doesn't necessarily say book. Well, I started writing about my father's childhood long time ago 20 years ago and that's included in baba and then the odyssey of a manchurian so by that time i figured i had already uh, written as much as i wanted to about the northeast of china it borders on korea siberia and mongolia but he started telling the story of how my great-grandfather had died he was sick feverish He went to see one of his sons and he was pushed out because he was a capitalist. And then ultimately he wound up at my grandfather's in a wheelbarrow, dying within a week. That story broke my heart and I just knew that I still had unfinished business. And at first it really felt like another burden because it was, I know it's a long process. Um, Also, I didn't know if I could get it published. But um, so I just kept working and it ended up to be 14 years before this book would come out because I had trouble um, with my original agent. She didn't believe in the project. Then editors didn't, they said that the book was too quiet for the market. 
So every time I got a rejection, I would pass out on the bed and recover for a few days and then try to, you know, make changes, thinking that if I could change the wording, you know, the structure, things would work out. But ultimately, it took a change in agent, and I re-met my old editor from Harcourt, who had by then moved to W.W. Norton and Company, and she suggested that I turn this prose book into a graphic memoir, and she said, why don't you read Persepolis? I had already read Mouse 1 and 2 by then, and I fell in love with Persepolis, the format. I think deep down inside, I always wanted to be a cartoonist. I had lived in Japan when I was six, seven, and read a lot of manga. So I fell into this format very naturally. And my editor said, like duck to water. Well, let's talk a little bit about shaping the story itself. This is not like an easy story. It was not an easy story for you to hear or even an easy story for you to find out. I mean, it's not like your something that your father really wanted to talk about. So I, I want you to talk about hearing, getting your father to tell the story with the idea that you are going to write it down as a story for others to read. My dad's a natural storyteller, so he was actually waiting for me to be ready to listen. Mm -hmm. And that took a return to China for three years. I I shouldn't say a return because I hadn't been to China. I was born on the island of Taiwan. And I went to China for three years and How old were you when you did this? I mean, I was 26, Mm -hmm. came home after the Tiananmen massacre. I was almost 30 by then. And I had traveled into the countryside, lived among the minorities, lived with my grandparents who were in their 80s. And then after the Tiananmen Massacre, seeing my friends who were writers and painters silenced, I vowed that I wouldn't waste this gift of the freedom of expression. So I didn't know what I was going to do, but I came home. And in a year's time, I was ready to listen to my father tell stories. Um, I took a you know, a pad of paper, a pencil, and a tape recorder, and just asked him to tell what he wanted to say. Now, were you guys speaking in Chinese or in English? Mostly Chinese. Mm-hmm. So you were writing this down in Chinese? No, actually, I was translating as I was, um, while he was um, speaking in Chinese, I was writing down in English. That's that's a very interesting decision for you to make on the spot. Why Why did you decide to do that? I mean, was this because you saw your ultimate audience as, as English-speaking? Or was this easier for you to do? Or is it, I mean, because I, I think that the language you choose to write in must make a big difference in how the story falls out. I think because translation is such a fun game for me, because it's not just in you know, a word-for-word translation. You really have to be clever, and you the comical phrases really need to be just perfect. And I like the fun of that game of, of taking one language and, and um, turning it into something that's close, very close to the original language. So it wasn't a decision. I... I knew I couldn't get it published in China because there are stories that are forbidden to be told in China, even at this point. Mm -hmm. Tiananmen Massacre, the obvious one, and I'm not at all kind to the communists. So naturally, the audience would be English speakers, and I'm much more comfortable in English, even though my first spoken language was Chinese. 
Well, you spent some time in, when you were in China before the Tiananmen massacre. You were translating in, in China, and actually even after, if I'm not mistaken. I was uh, studying at the Academy of Traditional Chinese Painting, mm-hmm. and I was sort of helping out a little bit, but mostly I was a student and traveling with other students into the Gobi Desert and into the countryside to paint and to sketch. After the Tiananmen massacre, a lot of the people who worked for the American embassy, their spouses who were working in the offices left because they were ordered to by the State Department. So I filled in um, at the Commerce Department, just a glorified secretary. Mm -hmm. So I was doing some translations there. Uh, In fact, actually, (laughs) I didn't, I missed out my chance on um, translating for the topmost dissident um, Fang Li Zhi that night of the Tiananmen Massacre because mm-hmm. he was at uh, CBS station and um, he was looking for a safe place to stay and I was asked to stand by but they disappeared. Mm-hmm. Now, um, you had your mentor, uh, art mentor in China was uh, the wife of Deng Paoxing, is that not correct? Um, Deng Xiaoping, yeah. he was, she her daughter was Deng Ling. She wasn't my direct mentor. She was one of the um, one of the teachers at the academy. So she was one of my teachers, but not mm-hmm. my direct mentor. But I saw her there every day. Well, now this is a really interesting situation. So you were uh, fairly well connected. You were well integrated into China, and then you came came back. Talk about having been in the China of today, and then coming back to here your father's story of China yesterday. How did your vision, your experience in China just before you came back inform how you heard, how you felt, and what you wrote of what your father told you? Well, I was able to, you know, take in what was left of old China. Mm -hmm. My dad used to say that in Beijing, because he had lived in Beijing as a child for many years, that no one ever came to um, fights. They might argue on the streets occasionally, but they never laid a finger on one another. And in Beijing, I saw a lot of people chasing each other around with bricks and things. <laughs> Just too many people, uh-huh. you know, elbowing each other. So, um, I guess to answer your question, I could understand what was missing or what had been swept out by the communist mm. And the cover art for Baba, my first book, was very bright with lots of reds and yellows and greens. The Chinese word for commotion or festivities is zhe nao. It's directly translated as hot and noisy. So I knew that China before the China I had seen was hot and noisy, full of life, you know, of noodle makers making their rounds or people collecting trash or selling water. You could hear all sorts of sounds, um, peaking opera on the, in the parks. But much of that had disappeared during the communists. As your father told you his story you were writing this down you at this point thought it was a prose story so um talk about choosing the details in prose and and what what you wrote down and how how much did you translate and how much did you take off the tape recorder and then uh as you were writing the story you you your dad's telling you one thing that's not exactly what you're going to be writing when you sit sit, sit down and hit the computer am i guessing mm-hmm. okay 
Um, it's, uh, I guess I worked on it so long that it was just a constant process of, of extracting what was not necessary. It's, um, it's an act of poetry because I'm constantly reading my revisions to the point that sometimes I get sore throats. I hear of other writers who also read out loud, some people don't, but I'm trying to hear if it sounds good or not. And then to take it another step into the graphic memoir format where you have captions and then dialogue as word bubbles, then that's another a big jump in, in poetic concision. Mm-hmm. At first, I worried a lot because I thought, well, here I have this manuscript that's, what, 300 pages long, and I have to boil this down. Am I going to lose a lot? And what I actually ended up with was something more, was more powerful, I thought. Because mm-hmm. I know um, when I, the first thing that I had read um, at the beginning of this program was part of the prose. And even what I'd read had been condensed for this program. But... It only takes one page of the graphic memoir to go straight for the the heart of this this particular scenario. Mm-hmm. You know, talk about uh, just hearing that and, and give us an idea uh, uh, of your your grandfather's story because it's one of the things I, I really love about this novel is all the stories within stories that 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 we hear and. That must have been fairly difficult to architect. So, give us an idea of what the whole arc is. Not too many spoilers, and then, <laughs> and then give us an idea of how you created these. It's almost like frescoes in a bigger in a bigger uh, sculpture. Yeah, somebody uh, likened it to a big pool, an eddy, and then there are smaller whirls of water. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, well. My father doesn't like this, but I compare it to a King Lear story because it's very much about power struggle in the family. Mm-hmm. And this is what happened. People, the sons wanted to take control as the elder began to become less agile. And so it's really about power. Um, and then all the stories, I guess they just, it's hard to analyze, but they just find find places to go Mm -hmm. and then there are certain things very few things that don't really get a niche um so i had to take that out and it was always very sad to take out something that i felt was important as a story but couldn't really find a home within the whole arc so i had to take a few of those out but most of it did go in Mm -hmm. um but i can't really explain beyond that it was just writing out the whole thing and then just polishing it and finding places to you know insert particular stories and finding meanings that um themes that connect throughout well you know one of the things that that i think is a a theme in this book is is uh translation itself that that there's a, a lot of translation from spoken stories to written stories from one language to another, and I, I think that's uh, that's an interesting uh, and not I'm not necessarily surprising uh, focus for you. Um, I guess so. Tra- it's always an act of translation, even taking the ideas and turning it into pictures. Mm-hmm. That's another act of translation. What should I choose for that particular? 
particular panel. I mean, the best way to represent something is to make the caption and the image work together so that you get two plus two equals more than four. Sure. And that's what people are taught about graphic novels. Mm-hmm. Um, but then sometimes you just want to underscore, you know, by repeating. Or sometimes you want to just leave it soundless, meaning no caption, mm-hmm. no dialogue at all. For people to stop and consider what's what they're seeing, you know the, the the translation process into a graphic novel. Now you had this the this whole thing written as a, as a as a novel or a memoir. Am I correct? Right, as a memoir. Yeah. Now um, you've got three hundred pages of, of memoir, and it's fairly polished, and you're pretty happy with it. And then you make this decision to um, turn it into a graphic novel. Uh, that's got to be that's a big decision talk about your your art style that you you know the first thing you're going in you have to figure out a, a, a cohesive style that you can do for all these pages i have a style that people describe as akin to the chinese folk art mm-hmm. and so that is what i picked up in china i fell in love with chinese paper cuts and new year prints and the peasant paintings themselves and so that's what I absorbed, and I think that style just fit naturally f- into this particular story mm-hmm. because it's rustic. It's rustic about people in the c- countryside, mm-hmm. um, but also it's um, it's a signature. I think I've heard people use this term. If you're illustrating every single panel the way you would illustrate, let's say, a children's book in great detail, you'd drive yourself crazy. Mm-hmm. And I've heard, I think, Josh Neufeld say that that he, he had to develop a style as, that was akin to his signature instead of a illustration of mm-hmm. an illustration so that it would flow more smoothly. And in a signature, you can sense a person's mood also. Mm-hmm. I mean, if he's angry, he, he's scrawling his signature. If he's feeling calmer, his handwriting's a little more legible, probably. Um, I like the reader to see my various mood changes throughout the book. You don't get that in a prose novel mm-hmm. where it's just all print. Mm-hmm. But with a graphic novel, you can sense the the varying moods of the artist and the writer. And are these your moods within the panel or your moods as you're creating them? There's, I, mm. Both. Uh, the moods when if my g- grandfather or my great-grandfather is suffering, then mm-hmm. I am painting with a different sort of passion. Mm-hmm. Um, when my father's second brother is dying, I remember pouring my heart into it and... Also toward the end, I guess I'm giving the ending away, but toward the end, um, as my great-grandfather lies dying, I wanted to finish it because it was too painful to paint him Mm -hmm. in his disheveled state after having been sent out as a beggar by his own son. Mm. Talk about, um, I guess it's must be interesting and difficult to recreate your own father in your own artistic style and your father had a lot of advice for you as terms of the writing i mean you you were ready to give up writing from the get-go when when he first saw what you were doing yeah he's um 
he was more worried that I had history correct. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't so much about the story arc or what was contained, but that I had it right. Mm-hmm. The, the dates were right. The he wanted logic. Yeah, he wanted it. This has to be logical, exactly. That's that you're quoting him. So in the beginning, we were fighting a lot over the content. And we used to fight anyway, because before I went to China, I was young. I didn't understand what hardships he and my mother had come through to come to this country. I was um, born in Taiwan. I'd been with them through difficult times, but I also grew up under better times. So I had forgotten all the pain. And I, you know, until I came back from China, did I it was after I came back that I finally was able to listen and listen more closely and listen with my heart instead of just, you know, with my ears and brushing aside his darkness. Mm. Because I always, always felt sometimes that I was unlucky that I understood Chinese because being born of an old culture, there's a lot of cynicism, there's a lot of darkness. Even in the humor, it's dark. It's, um, and I wanted none of that. But I started absorbing Chinese through my mother's belly long time ago, whereas mm-hmm. my Chinese-American girlfriends were severed from the language and its darkness when they were born, when they were here, born in the United States. That's an interesting perception. I never, never really thought of languages as having any particular characteristic. Uh, one thing that, that did strike me was that your... Um, what there's a big decision when you're making a graphic novel out of a out of a regular novel, which is what goes into the illustration and, and what goes into the prose. And we talked a little bit about this, but I'd like you to to explore this a little bit more because um, there's you know it's data density is what we're talking about here is how much information comes up to us from a page. And one of the things that about a graphic novel is you can look at one you know any page in this in this book and in like 2 seconds you can get all the information and a lot of all the emotion that you could get from three or four pages of prose well i think the hardest part i'm not sure if i'm still going to be able to answer that question but the hardest part is choosing the subject matter to mm-hmm. to complement your words. The words are already there because I've written them first, mm-hmm. and I've condensed the words to captions. Actually, I've written it, typed it out as a script. Okay, so it's like a movie script. Yeah, it's, it's exactly like a movie script. Mm-hmm. But. I will go through a morning just trying to imagine what should go in the particular panels, um, an average of six panels per page, sometimes you know fewer, but generally about six panels. And that's the hardest part, walking around, thinking, 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 and what would symbolically illustrate the point mm. rather than um, you know physically illustrate the you know, accurately what was happening. That's no fun for me. I want it to be, to be uh, more imaginative, mm-hmm. f- full of symbols. So that, that takes a lot of time. But once, once that's thought, thought through, I go directly into the paper, the Bristol board, without sketches. Mm. And I draw. I use a pencil, of course, to draw on the panel, individual panels, but then I go 
over the pencil with gouache, which is a an opaque watercolor. Mm-hmm. Now, um, you know, when you're... <laughs> This is, a, this is a really interesting process. You know, I've never thought about this. When you're writing a novel, you type it in, and if you change your mind, you just, you know, cut and paste. That's not quite so easy when you're doing right. a graphic novel. Do you Did you find yourself redoing panels or maybe changing one panel on a page, which would change every other panel ripple effect? It seems like that could be really troubling. A lot of people these days work right on the computer. They might do the initial sketches mm-hmm. uh, in pencil, but they'll scan it and use Photoshop to ink and do color. So maybe it's easier for them to move things around. But for, for me, that way, um, I actually, the way they do it with just Photoshop, you don't have a physical product. Sure. You don't have artwork to put under your bed or in your closet. And I have a stack of stuff that I can actually touch, and that's what I like. And it took um, some real thinking which way I would go. But um, I've lost my dream of stuff. Well, I'm wondering about revising. Did you ever have to find yourself having to revise the images, and how hard was that for you? Actually, it wasn't as hard as I thought because I also feared that part of the revision. Mm-hmm. I would hand everything to Elaine Salerno Mason at Norton, and she would, you know, say this has to be moved and that has to be moved. But oh actually, my the, God, I did, yeah, <laughs> it's not even your choice; it's somebody else's choice. Oh my God! But how she annoying. didn't have that many. She had a handful of oh. things that she wanted to be moved. And I think that the the um, editing process of the script was really important mm-hmm. because when that's set. And then she allows me to just, you know, do my own thing. Things pretty, pretty much go smooth, smoothly. Well, now there's another bit of translation that we haven't talked about, which you have 300 pages of prose. You've got to essentially turn it into a, a movie script. Uh, talk about that process for you because you're – at that point, you're kind of like your own director, and you, but you have an unlimited special effects budget, so you can actually show the giant vistas there. You don't. Yeah, have to, yeah. That's what I love about this format. I mean, somebody asked me, now that you've done this, do you think you'll work in other formats? Yeah, I will. But this is what I really love now because it's so inexpensive. I, I am the director. I am the sound effects person. You know, smack bang, I can do the Chinese sound effects. Um, everything. I, and since I'm an only child, I've tended to work by myself. I didn't have to have, you know, too much input except from my editor. Bill, let's get back to some of this art. We see art on a page that's of a certain size, and that doesn't is that the size that you actually create at? No, it's much bigger. It's uh, 14, 11 by 14 inches. So, and it's reduced to that book size something you can hold in your hands. Wow, that's great. So you actually, and you have, even as we speak, there's an exhibition of your some of your panels at the Santa Cruz Museum of Art and History. Talk about uh, what you chose to, to show there and, and why. I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> I, I, um, uh, Susan Hillhouse, the curator, hung the pieces. There are like 25 pieces all consecutive from, mm-hmm. from the book, and it's in the Octagon, which is free entry. It's Lulu's Coffee Shop or whatever. Um, it's yeah, Lulu's. it's Lulu's, yes. Yeah. So it's right on the wall. You can wander in and take a look. 
Now, uh, when you're creating at this size, that's even more interesting in terms of because, you know, books are a certain size and we're used to the kind of the impact of books at a certain size, and including a graphic novel. When we look at this, this is a size I can hold and look at my hand and it strikes my eyes in a certain manner because it's a certain size. When you're creating it, it's much larger. How does that, there's another act, I guess, of translation in terms of translating it down to size. And do you do the lettering at the larger size or does the lettering come afterwards? Well, I did the lettering, but my lettering has just become really scrawly since third grade. And they decided <laughs> to digital, digital, digitalize it. So I, you know, wrote my alphabet out in my own handwriting and they, um, it's, so it's typeset. Yeah, it's a typeset scanned version of your handwriting. Right. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, and and it makes it make it much easier to deal with for you. It is, and I had to do a double take because I thought they hadn't done anything, and it was it was in the new font, Belyang font. <laughs> so you have your own font named yeah. after yourself. Wow, that's an honor. <laughs> now, uh, let let you know. This book is a work of history, too. And I think that what's interesting to me, it's a history that I think most of your readers are don't know boo about. So when you're creating a work of history, a, a novel, and you're trying to tell people about a history, it, it, you have to make a lot of decisions, editing decisions, as to what you're going to tell them, you know, that's going to be part of the story and what is part of the history. So tell me about, you know, rewriting and to a certain extent rewriting history. Well, the history um, is, let me say that with a graphic novel format, it's a lot easier to bring the reader along, people who don't care about that particular time or mm -hmm. place. For some reason, it just is easier. It's like a film. You sit there, you don't have to, to um, I guess you don't have to engage as much as in a prose book. You don't have to put your entire th you know, thinking cap on. So with, with a graphic novel, like in a film, you get to place the reader in, in an environment mm -hmm. and I put enough history to explain why the family met with the disasters that it did mm -hmm. but um, I pretty much dealt it with a pretty light dealt with a pretty light hand mm -hmm. I don't think it was overwhelming and also I wasn't sh I was wasn't really sure about this um, this actually market because we have to think about market when, when you're also you know writing you're talking about your audience mm -hmm. and who's going to be reading this this is i think a it demands a higher level of understanding in terms of history than mouse because a lot of people already know about the holocaust mm -hmm. but manchurian what happened with the japanese invasion the civil wars and after the civil wars the communism mm -hmm. um the communists coming not many people are interested or know about it i'd say that i would say that not many people are know about it so you don't have that cultural background because you you can't escape the holocaust it's it's uh, it's really part of a integral part of our culture but the, the one of the things you do very well is to tell a ripping yarn i mean this is an exciting story to read there's all sorts of really great exciting stuff that happens in here and so 
well, maybe why don't you tell us about, you know, creating the ripping yarn aspect of this to keep us reading and excited? Well, I, I'm, hmm, <laughs> that is like, I guess, a, a course in literature, so I'm not sure if I can really tell you about it, but it's just, hope, hopefully that everything, the story itself is engaging mm-hmm. for me so that I can tell it well. If it's not interesting to me, it's not going to go anywhere. And it was fascinating to me because I was, in a way, taking revenge for my family. Mm-hmm. Taking revenge, bringing justice to um, my great-grandfather who died under such horrible times. So that kind of fueled me. And I think that maybe toward the end, you'll sense my speeding up in my brushwork. Mm, um, interesting. Yeah, yeah. You know, I didn't think about it that way because I, you know, one thing that I think is uh, is interesting about graphic novels is, like anything else, it takes uh, it takes a little bit of experience to learn how to read them, and we're used to reading novels and just looking at the words. But so, talk about creating images that themselves tell the story, as you said, with the faster brush strokes. I mean, how much of that is deliberate and planned on your part that is in the script, and how much of it happens when you're there in front of the canvas? In front of the script um, is probably 60%, but Mm -hmm. the 40% is the emotion that I feel when I'm writing it. But uh, this is an aside, but for Chinese, the language itself is poetry. Uh, visual poetry because mm-hmm. the words are pictographs, ideographs. And so when I started working in this format, it came very natural to me because I've always loved Chinese characters. The Chinese characters are very different from Western language where you have the alphabet. Mm-hmm. To me, the Chinese characters are like ravioli, right? Whereas English is more like spaghetti. It's looser, it's more fluid, whereas Chinese come in distinct units. Mm-hmm. So. I, I was wondering about that. Now, yeah, so the Chinese language did inform the visual element in this then? Yeah. I mean, I think subconsciously, I'm not saying uh-huh. that I was thinking about the visuals and, and the meaning of the visuals per se to my Chinese brain. It was just that it always felt natural to me for words and images to come together. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why, what this big brouhaha about, you know, um, this, the newness of graphic novels, because it's been around for a long time in Asia. And mm-hmm. so for me, it just seems natural, especially since I was reading manga in Japan when I was um, five, six, and seven years old. And also, the Chinese, if you've ever been to an Asian museum and you've seen a horizontal scroll unrolled under glass, that's not really the right way to see it. The scroll is an intimate object which you hold in your hand and you unroll one small segment at a time so that it's as if you're riding on the back of a horse or a donkey and you're traveling through the landscape into the village and into the mountains, past the waterfall, across the bridge, you know, over the lake in a boat. So you're traveling. And this graphic novel format is the same thing. Even though it's not a scroll, it really is that motion. It gives you a forward motion um, of moving left to right. In the case of China or Japan, it's right to left. But uh, it's no wonder that the Japanese took to manga so readily. Mm 
talk about you know your what kind of manga were you reading when you were a kid? I mean, that, is there anything? What? Oh well, there were lots of manga like um, they still produce it ribbon mm -hmm. for girls so i was waiting for the ribbon i think it was bi-monthly mm -hmm. and they would come out with these big chunky things and we would my girlfriends and i would read it avidly and copy the art and you know draw these big saucer-eyed children and when i came to the united states i was wearing you know my favorite manga character shoes but um that was 1967 and no one else was wearing it <laughs> and i couldn't find any more of those shoes the only place that you could find manga was at the Japan town store, and it was always really expensive. And if you mail ordered it, it would come months too late. Mm. Well, talk about you know your experiences reading that as a kid versus reading um, stuff with prose. Prose. How did that visual? experience inform you you know as a as a young artist that you talked about copying that stuff that's not that's really interesting because i mean kids here read comics books but you don't hear about them copying them. oh yeah they do oh. i was um, um at the san jose um king's library where they had a contest for various ages and they were all copying to an extent but making their own stories mm -hmm. so they were copying these you know big saucer-eyed girls and saucer-eyed boys too and um and that's a good way to learn mm -hmm. because we're all copyists um, at a certain level. Mm -hmm. We we learn from copying from others and then develop our own style. Well, it's it's one of the things that's I think always interesting when you're trying to to create something is to when you I think when you deliberately try to copy somebody's style, it's it's impossible you just cannot do it mm -hmm. and no matter how hard you try there you're going to be making some mistakes you're going to be influencing it with yourself and i think with your own style and i think that um by doing that i think you it's it is as you say a great way to learn but also it's a means of learning how to express yourself it's in a sense like acting it's um well, I, I don't know much about acting, but I guess I've always felt that um, when people are accusing other people of copying, um, there's always, even the masters copied from mm -hmm. others, and, and even as apprentices. So, but I, I, this is a complete an aside, but this book is um, nonfiction, but it's also fiction. It's a memoir. It also could be a novel. And I've never really kind of fallen into any particular category. I write mm -hmm. nonfiction adult illustrated books, but I also write fiction children's books. So um, I guess I, what I'm trying to say is that I, I could copy to a certain extent, but, but um, end up doing my own thing. Well, I think there's a lot of, it's clear, I mean, well, when you you talk about your your stalker, I mean, in, in this book, who who propels the action at the beginning, um, your visual portrayal of him is, I think, it's completely symbolic and really interesting, and that makes this. It's a one of the things that a graphic novel memoir allows you, in fact, encourages you to do, is to externalize the internal visions things that you can't say or wouldn't say or your or the way you see people to just put that out in an image that's undeniably true
for you at at, at a gut level? Um, a friend of mine said, why did you draw your rotten egg, the stalker, as a giant baby? And that was an enlightening moment because for me, I realized that that abusive, horrible ex-boyfriend who stalked me was indeed a baby and that I had manifested him in art as a huge blubbering baby. Um, whenever he didn't get what he wanted in the world or from me, then he was um, hitting back. So it it um, it really made sense to me when somebody pointed it out to me. Oh, you draw on a big fat baby. And that made him seem less dangerous. When you were drawing some of the more painful episodes of your father's lives, did when you showed him the pictures, did he have a similar reaction? Did you find yourself creating visions for him of things that may, might have, you know, he might have found kind of hurtful? Um, for, hurtful to him? Yeah. No, he actually, I knew that he would be laughing because when I was drawing... <laughs> I, you know, the smoke coming out of his ears when we were fighting, <laughs> those scenes I knew that were far, far back in the past. I mean, tragedy plus time equals comedy. And so we had plenty of time pass. Mm -hmm. So he would see that as really funny. And most of the people who are in the book are long gone. My great grandparents, my grandfather parents and um, my father's uncles they're all they're all gone now so there were, was no family history that couldn't be divulged um, that's um, and I gave him a copy he, he's very territorial about his books because he likes to write he likes to annotate so when he got his pristine copy he started scribbling and they were all about you know, re-meeting the past, the painful past, and his thoughts on that mm -hmm. afterward. But I could hear him laughing a lot of times in the way I depicted him. Well, you talked about writing for an audience and, and you know, thinking about who your readers are. You're, you've got to be thinking about your father as a reader, too, and, and as, a, as, you know, somebody who's looking at these images. And images have a, a an impact, an immediate impact that you that bypasses words and bypasses our logical thinking brain. And I'm wondering how, you know, you, how much of this work was as you, because I guess if you're creating something that bypasses your brain, does, do you bypass your brain when you're creating it? Um, I'm not sure how to answer that. Though uh, what, what you've just said makes sense. I've heard somebody else say that, and then I've heard other people contest it, that when you're reading a book, you do cry, but it's at the films, at the movies, where, you, you, where the visual, visual images bypass the gates mm -hmm. and really hit hard. So you see people coming out of theater with tears streaming down their face. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I really haven't thought about that much, so I can't really answer that well when you were creating these images did you was there some was your father back there as your first editor somewhere um he was and he wasn't because we've worked on the first two books mm -hmm. a long time ago and so we've kind of gotten used to one another and i just you know who was actually 
<laughs> you don't know, but the person who was really actually looking over my shoulder was my great grandfather, mm -hmm. because I was born in 1960 and he died around the time during the Great Famine, mm -hmm. which was unleashed by the Great Leap Forward, which started in 1958. Sure. So right. he died around 1960 when I was coming into um, the world. In, in many ways, as I worked on this book, I felt that I had become the incarnation, reincarnation of my great-grandfather. And so I f felt an obligation to him to get the story done. And as I s told you earlier, I was ill for 10 years ago. And when I had come home from the hospital, th I had one dream about my great-grandfather. And, and he had come to me and didn't say anything, but I knew that dream was... At, it was as if he were saying that you're sick now, you're in bed, but you have no excuse to be lying in bed because that story isn't done. And so, in a way, I felt like he also saved my life because I got up and got better and went on to finish the story. I just couldn't let it go. And, you know, at the end, after 14 years, after I left my agent, who was a superstar agent, um, I got a really great review in Kirkus. A starred review and my former agent emailed me and congratulated me so it was really nice nice ending there's a it sounds like there's a, a certain feeling you feel vindicated from by, by the the reception of the book yeah yeah I do now we talked about how you created a movie script for this I'm wondering if anybody has said well this might make a good movie Oh, I didn't create a movie script, well, but it has a, yeah. Well, nobody has um, <laughs> come up with that, but I mean, I sure wouldn't mind. Um, whatever, whatever happens. That I, but I don't want to work on it. I'd like to be able to move on to my next project. Do you have any idea what your next project is? The next pro project involves Taiwan, which is off the coast of Fujian province in southern China. Mm -hmm. It's an island. And that's where I was born, and my mother was born there, and so were my um, maternal side of the family. They grew up under the Japanese occupation for 50 years, and and um, the Japanese, when they first came, were were policemen. But later on, engineers and teachers came and were friendly with the people who were already there. So there's a you know. Officially, we're not supposed. To, the Chinese are not supposed to like the Japanese, mm -hmm. but underneath it all people are people and people become friends and my mother's side of the family was adopted by a japanese family wow so it sounds like you still have your mother's whole side of the story that's you know, the 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 next book will, would be it's called umbilical cord <laughs> now <laughs> uh, are you conceiving this one as a graphic novel memoir from the from the get go yeah it's not going to be written in prose first i'm wondering as you've been doing these paintings, one of the things that, that's nice about the style that you have, um, when you go for a, a simple and kind of symbolic, as it were, style, you, A, you can heighten the emotion with those simple strokes so that we see something and we know that the character's sad and it strikes, we're sad before we've even, before our eyes have even processed any words on the page. We know the character's sad and we're sad because of the, and, and this has to do, I think, with the simplicity of, of the style. I think you're helping me by, by reacting to what I've done because I haven't 
thought about it. I'm the person who's, who's making the images, so I really haven't considered it. But no, that's interesting to me, because as you said earlier, and you keep trying to get an answer from me about, about you know, how a, a reader sees the entire spread and mm-hmm. gathers information. And you're right, our eyes are agile. They don't go one place at a time. They're able to scan the whole page or spread mm-hmm. and gather meaning from that. But there are some people who have trouble reading this way. Mm-hmm. And what they do is they read all the captions first on a page and then go back to the art and then say, I don't get it. Mm. So that's... I, I think that that that's a... Uh, it's a skill reading in graphic novels a skill just like reading a regular novel in that you know you can read you might be able to understand the English language but there's something about putting together a novel in your mind as a reading experience that's beyond just understanding what the sentences say and, and I think that that, that a, a similar skill is, is probably called for for, the, for a graphic novel now with your new work are you going to keep the same style and the same art process or are you going to try something different i think it's this will be the same process because i kind of think of it as a second book to this a companion book Mm -hmm. and this book itself was actually a third book of a trilogy Mm -hmm. but it ended in a different format Mm -hmm. but i kind of like to keep it together because one sort of um it's connected still Mm -hmm. it's definitely not about my father it's definitely about my mother she's from the Hakka tribe most people think of Chinese as being entirely homogenous black hair black eyes but they're very different f- um, from the north to the south and mm. there are small tribes that live pretty independently my mother's t- tribe of people w- were pushed um, south from northern China around 300 AD when the Huns were invading Rome, the Huns were also pushing into China. Mm -hmm. And so they lost their land and kept going south. And they were known as Kejia or Hakka, which means guest families or guest people. So they were the Jews of China. Mm. So I'm going to be addressing the issue of who are we, where do we come from, where, where do we live, what is our nationality, because they were Japanese, they were Chinese, they became a different kind of Chinese after 1945. So <laughs> that sounds very complicated. Um, and you live here in America where things are somewhat complicated, but not like that. I talk about kind of creating, uh, conveying the complexity in a, in a graphic novel format, that's gonna gonna be a challenge, I'm guessing. You know, actually, the graphic format makes it easier for me because the point of view is so much easier to get across. You, know, you t- talk about first person, second person, third person, um, third person. Omniscient. Uh, omniscient, but also there's another term that I heard recently. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway. It's easy because you're physically drawing that person who's who's thinking or speaking, mm-hmm. and then another person can be speaking and thinking in in their own panel, and so you're actually be able to you're able to connect who's doing what, who's saying what, who's thinking what mm-hmm. through the visuals, and you don't have to make a lot of effort in trying to convey whose head you're in. Mm. So in that way, it's actually easier. You know, th- this is all done in black and white, right? just to, to let our audience know, because I'm looking at the book. And there's, you know, there's a lot of darkness in this book, I think. 
do you think that's a result of your vision? Yeah, and you know, before I answer that, um, a lot of times people ask me when I showed them the art in black and white, they say, well, are you going to go on and continue in color? I said, no, it's going to be in black and white. Because no, it couldn't be anything else. No, and black and white has its own beauty, its own, I think a lot of artists, the majority of artists I talk to prefer black and white. Mm-hmm. And it has its own parameters, it has its own problems to solve. So, but also, don't you think that when you read it that it was funny too? It was humorous? Oh yeah, no, there's no doubt about it. It's it's very funny and, and, and entertaining and lively, I think. And that's, I think, one of the things you do well visually is convey the kind of, that's what one of the strengths of the graphic novel format is that it's, um, you can show that liveliness much more easily than mm-hmm. you can in just, you know, dialogue. Right. Like you can draw a person doing somersaults. When yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and just the, by putting space around a person, empty space, it, give, it gives them more, a more the, the work, a more mm-hmm. lively feel. Well, it is a dark book because if you think about it, what is our basic structure in a society? It's the family. Mm-hmm. And when the communists came, they tried to destroy that very basic fabric by turning children against their parents. Children were asked to turn their parents in if they had relics from the past, photographs, things like that. So the entire Confucian fabric was torn asunder. Mm. Um, Confucius was all about the patriarchy, the, the um, um, living by certain standards and hierarchy so that there is no chaos under heaven. The Chinese are extremely afraid of Luan, which is the same word as Ran, um, that Kurosawa film. Mm-hmm. They're afraid of chaos under heaven. That's what it is. And so um, in this book, it's dark because the basic fabric of the Chinese society was torn asunder. And what you have now is a very, well, my personal, I think I'm going to get flack for this, but I think people in China um, really need psychotherapy having mm. lived through that those times. It's a very traumatic time. I mean, uh, the, the, the entire fabric of society and, as you say, the family was completely shattered by our... They tried to shatter. It's something you can't shatter. Right. So what happens is is everything gets warped, and but the connections you can't cannot erase the family the connections. Of right. Family. And, and it's like the pendulum swing of history. It goes mm-hmm. extreme one way, and then it swings back the other. Now you have one child, one child per family, at least in the cities, and then you have um, what four four no eight grandparents. <laughs> So it's just really skewed one way or the other. Now, um, one of the things that that interests me uh, about this book is to, you know, the kind of framing devices you you use in here because you know part of it is partly said in in you know here in the here and now, and talk about choosing those framing devices and and. Uh, illustrating them to make them to make us aware of where we are um, framing devices as in the physical characteristics of the graphic format like sometimes bigger panels and smaller panels or? well that actually I was thinking of you know that it, that, that you're you start with your you know yeah. you you're you asking your father to tell the story yeah well I have I start out with um, with rotten egg the 
violent stalker boyfriend because I had known physical, personal violence, violence at a very personal level. Mm -hmm. And then I went to China and I saw violence at the state level. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty much the same thing. I mean, one is personal, one is much larger. And the way people silence, um, one human being silenced the other is through manipulation, through giving them a piece of sweet and then hitting them the next time, giving them another piece of candy and slapping them next time. That's what the government did also. They will, you know, accommodate the citizen um, one moment and then, you know, hit them um, with some really stringent laws. That's how you manipulate um, human beings in a relationship. That's what I learned from the fearsome time in, in Los Angeles when I was with this person, Rotten Egg, and I saw this thing happening in China. So for me, that was the parallel. That was the two intertwining strings in, in this particular book. And um, the Rotten Egg silenced me by not allow me, allowing me to speak up, and the government silenced the people by not letting them tell stories. And stories have power, and stories are always the first to go when a new government comes in because the new emperor wants to write new ones according to his dictates. Well, your story will retain its power for a long time. I've been speaking with Belle Yang. Her new graphic novel memoir is Forget Sorrow, an Ancestral Tale. Thank you for joining me, Belle. Thank you, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.